This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 6, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Military occupations usually fail. Author David Edelstein has tried to explain why most occupations failed and others succeeded in his book, Occupational Hazards. We spoke following a Cato Book Forum, May 29th. You say that threat environment is a key variable in being able to predict success of an occupation. What does that mean? Well, when I talk about threat environment, I, I'm talking about the the situation that an occupied territory faces. So um, is there an external threat to their security? Is there some internal threat that threatens to tear the society or state apart? Or is there no threat at all? And the essential argument I make is that military occupations have uh, been most successful when there is, in fact, an external threat that is perceived to be greater than the threat of the occupying power itself. Um, and the occupying power can there, thereby provide protection um, to the occupied population that they actually um, welcome and are therefore willing to tolerate being, being occupied. You said in the forum that Japan and Germany would be exceptions rather than the rule. Why is that? I know a lot of people point to Japan and Germany and say, you know, if we just had a million boots on the ground, everything would be uh, hunky-dory in Iraq. Why are they the exception and not the rule? Well, I think the difference, again, goes to this threat environment variable, which is that in, in Germany, you had the threat of the Soviet Union, which was marching westward across Central and Eastern Europe. And in Japan, the concern was not so much about Soviet uh, invasion, per se, but but Soviet-inspired communism that really sort of was a was a coalescing threat for the both the occupying power and the occupied population that they realized that this was vitally important, uh, and I think in the case of Iraq, the, you just simply don't have that same type of threat. There are there are various threats out there that one could postulate, whether it be Iran or Al Qaeda, uh, that might constitute such a threat. But I don't think we've seen the same type of of coherence in in terms of the views of that threat among either the Iraqi population or within the United States. What about this factor of preventing internal cohesion threats from within? Well, I think Iraq is the, 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 the classic case of a society that was deeply fractured before um, the United States invaded, right? And sort of Saddam Hussein had managed to kind of, through his authoritarian rule, sort of keep that country together. But there are historically deep divisions between the, the Sunni community and the Shia community and the Kurdish community within, within Iraq. Uh, and when you have that type of division within a society, uh, it's going to make it quite difficult for there to be any sort of coherence and any agreement among the population on the nature of any external threat that they face. And, and so when you have that type of internal fissure within society, um, it almost makes it impossible for there to be agreement on this, this external threat that might be out there. You talked in the paper from which your book was uh, derived about deadlines for withdrawal and the impact that a deadline for withdrawal would have, especially a credible uh, a deadline for withdrawal would have, you suggested that that would be counterproductive. Why is that? Well, I think one of the dangers with, with setting deadlines for withdrawal uh, is that if, if it is credible, then any groups that are sort of disgruntled have an incentive to simply wait until you leave, right? Um, and so they can 
you know, bide their time and say, why would we fight now when this powerful military is still in our country? Why not just wait until they leave and then we can try and assert ourselves and, and gain the control that we want? So, you know, I think a lot of people would say having a credible deadline for withdrawal is really important as a signal to the population. It may be to a portion of the population, but to another portion of the population, it may just say, um, you know, we're, we're going to hold our fire for the moment, but we haven't gone away. Do we, in a sense, have the worst of both worlds in Iraq because we have a, a very vibrant and very loud uh, debate in the United States about timetables, setting deadlines that uh, forces for good or ill in Iraq get to watch unfold? So you, in a sense, you do have uh, some credibility of, of a timetable withdrawal. And uh, in, in a, does that also have a chilling effect on on the government to to take action for itself? I think there's great questions about sort of what exactly is going on in Iraq and some of the groups that we have seen perhaps um, quiet down, become more quiescent in the last few months, what exactly their motive is, right? I mean, I think it's you one could argue that they have in fact been defeated. One could argue that they've realized that there are better ways for them to accomplish their goals than to fight, both of which are plausible. One could also argue that they've realized that this is not the time to fight, right? If the United States is going to have, you know, close to 150,000 troops in Iraq and you want to fight and those U.S. troops have now instituted counterinsurgency tactics that can be quite effective, you might say to yourself, we're not going to fight now. We know that the U.S. stomach for continuing this over the long term um, may not be there. And in fact, you have presidential candidates who have been talking quite openly about getting out of Iraq. I think they have every incentive to say to themselves, there's no hurry on this, right? This, we're talking if the, the U.S. time horizons might be quite short on this. The Iraqi time horizons on this, I think, are quite long, right? They're talking about control of the, the country. Um, and they may be able to wait it out a little bit. Um, President Bush recently uh, made comments making pretty strong comparisons between Iraq and World War II. Yeah, and it's not the first time he's done this, right? I mean, this was this was a very popular argument made back in 2003 when when the insurgencies first started to emerge and and um, very popular at the time to say, well, the German and Japan occupation didn't go so great at the beginning either, right? And look how they turned out. Well, I think there are a couple of critical differences there, right? One is that while the German and Japanese occupation certainly sort of encountered some difficulty and had some hiccups along the way, in neither case was there anything like the insurgency that we've seen in Iraq. Um, and, you know, not all of the insurgency in Iraq is about the occupation, right? I mean, it has sort of turned into kind of more of a civil war than necessarily kind of an anti-U.S. conflict in many parts of, of Iraq. But I think the analogy between Germany and Japan and Iraq um, only goes so far in that there was never the need to kind of deal with the type of insurgency in Germany and Japan that we've, we've seen in Iraq. How good are occupiers at predicting the incentives that are actually at work for leadership in the countries that they're occupying. Well, I think they've they've not always been particularly good at it, right? And I think in part that's because it's it's often difficult to identify who the most powerful leaders in any society are post-conflict, right? And and sometimes you choose the wrong ones, right? And and they're not representative and they don't speak for the people and um and you wind up getting yourself in trouble because you're sort of talking to the wrong leaders or buying into what the the wrong leaders are saying. So I think, you know, part of the difficulty for occupying powers is that in the uncertainty and chaos of a post-intervention context, um, making any type of predictions is difficult, including sort of the nature of the, the leadership that you're dealing with. 
David Edelstein is author of Occupational Hazards, Success and Failure in Military Occupation. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. You can watch or listen to the full May 29th Book Forum at Cato.org.